Hey jailbirds, welcome to Jailbird Chronicles. I'm Brittany and I'm a forensic social worker here to get chatty about criminal justice and some other related topics. And of course, I'll be giving you my perspective from the other side of the barbed wire. Let's get into it. Last week I talked about COVID safety precautions that have been put in place in jails that I have worked in, in New York City and in DC. Today I want to share some things that have been going on in jails around the world. Um, I read an article by UN News. They did an interview with Philip Meisner. And according to this article, there are 11 million prisoners worldwide. Now this talks about mostly what's going on in prisons as opposed to just what's happening in jails. So, like I said, 11 million prisoners worldwide. More than 527,000 prisoners have become infected with COVID-19 in 122 countries, with more than 3,800 fatalities in 47 countries. So prisons and jails are a high-risk environment for those who live and work there. There's close proximity to other prisoners, officers, and healthcare professionals. As I've said before, jails, and I'm sure prisons as well, are not well ventilated, if they're ventilated at all. Um, And it is always close quarters. Units aren't aren't completely large, Um, especially if you have a dorm unit where you have one open space with 50 to 60 beds lined up right next to each other. People are really on top of each other, pretty much. Um, The officers that have to work in those spaces as well as the incarcerated people. And the officers come in and out of the jails. They go out into society. They can contract it when they're out in the community and then come back and bring it to the jail. And then it spreads rapidly because of the poor ventilation and the close quarters. Um, But it can also spread um, from other workers, healthcare professionals, other civilian staff. And it can also spread from the incarcerated people who are incoming, just coming in off the streets from the jails. So there's a lot of ways for this virus to get into the jails. And once they're in the jails, they are, that virus is in, that virus as well as any other virus is in the ideal place to just spread and grow and mutate, really. Um, Even relatively well-resourced penal systems face serious challenges. The article says that even relatively well-resourced penal systems face serious challenges. And you would think that places like America, who, which is a place that is seen as being a well-resourced place, you would think that we could have a handle on it. You would think that other very developed countries would have a handle on it. But regardless, the way that jails have been 
created, especially in the United States, are just not equipped to handle slowing down the spread of anything. Going back to that poor ventilation, going back to the close proximity to other people, there's really no way to avoid it because people are always incoming into the jails and the space doesn't get any bigger. The ventilation doesn't get any better. Prior to the pandemic, the prison system struggled in catering to basic needs to ensure prison health. Access to personal protective equipment, infrared thermometers, or testing capacities specific to COVID-19 is challenging. So I totally agree with that statement. Um, in general, I mean, the jails, the prisons, they offer health care, they offer um mental health and medical health and dental health and vision health and everything but still because of how the structures were built because of how they function it's already difficult to provide quality care and then when you add a pandemic to the mix it makes it even more difficult and like I said in um, part one of this episode, um, the access to PPE, it, it was difficult, especially for the first six months of the pandemic, at least. It was difficult to get masks. It was difficult to get cleaning supplies. My supervisor put in an order for um, sanitary wipes Um, so that we could wipe down our desks and other surfaces Um, in February of 2020. We did not receive those supplies until maybe the end of May 2020. They weren't giving out masks. They were requiring that workers wear masks when in the facility, but they didn't have enough masks to go around. Over time, they did get the necessary um, the necessary PPE. But we're talking like you get one mask a day. If that. Like I said, I had to purchase my own PPE in order to wear it in the facility. Um, when it comes to the thermometers... This is all different equipment that people had to invest in, that they had to budget for, um, that systems had to budget for. Um, The infrared thermometers, that came gradually and later on. As new requirements came up, the jails had to keep up with those requirements and it takes a lot of resources to keep up with those requirements on top of making sure that the other basic needs for the incarcerated people are being met. So Mr. Meisner in this interview goes on to encourage 
transparent communication with prisoners and employees to minimize riots and other security incidents. I 100% agree in um, transparent communication. I feel like there's absolutely no reason to BS people or to try to pull the wool over people's eyes because especially during the uh, pandemic, um, we need to stick together and we shouldn't be doing and saying things and promising things that are going to break trust. Even without the pandemic, we all have to be in jail together. The workers, the incarcerated people, we all have to be there together. And I think that we should always be as transparent as possible. I always found that it was best practice to be transparent with my clients. I felt like they respected me for it. If they asked me a question and I didn't know the answer, I don't know the answer, but I can work on finding out for you. If the answer is no, tell them no. If the answer is yes, tell them yes. We don't need to play games. These are adults who are incarcerated. They should be treated with enough respect to know the truth of what's going on. Unfortunately, in the pandemic, in general, majority of us were kept in the dark. We didn't know if we could trust what was being told to us on the news. And what was being told to us on the news was changing every single day. So sometimes we didn't have answers for our patients. That made it very, that made it a very complicated situation. That kept people on edge in an already, in an environment that could be hostile on its own. So transparency and letting people know clearly this is what's going on right now. And these are the precautions that we have to take. And the precautions may come at an inconvenience to you, but with the information that we know, this is the best that we could do to keep you safe, to maintain your safety, to try to make sure that this virus isn't spreading so rapidly. A couple episodes back, I talked about um, a hunger strike that some of the incarcerated people on Rikers Island in one of the jails um, were encouraging and engaging in. In response to COVID precautions, I don't know what the communication was with them if they were given an explanation as to why visits were adjusted, as to why mail was coming in slower than normal, as to why certain programs weren't running. I don't know that they were communicated, they, they received information regarding those things honestly and clearly. But I think that just being honest with people, they might not like what they hear, but I think that it could reduce the likelihood of them becoming enraged, enraged because they're not getting the truth. They feel like they're being left in the dark and this is their lives and they're scared. 
or they feel deprived. So I always think that clear communication is always the best thing instead of leaving people in the dark to make assumptions and then rumors start and then we have things like hunger strikes and riots because no one knows what's going on. According to this article, riots have occurred in approximately 50 countries due to uncertainty. When people are uncertain, they start getting anxious, they start making assumptions, their mind starts reeling, and they're talking to other people who are giving them information that isn't even accurate, and then that gets them upset, and then they want to go against the people or the agency or the officials who they feel are keeping them in the dark who they feel are not being honest with them are putting them in harm's way so transparency and clear communication with people is really important it's not oh well they're just inmates no they're human beings They're adults, and they should be privy to what's going on, to be informed of what's going on every step of the way so that they can understand why certain things are being adjusted. There have been measures adopted in many countries, um that have resulted in further restrictions, including suspension of visits and programs. Like I talked about um, from my experience working in jails on Rikers Island, as well as in the DC jail, both sides, the central detention facility and the central treatment facility, there were adjustments in visits and programs. Rikers, I mean, to begin with, this isn't visits, but um, in New York City, incarcerated people can um, make their phone calls for free. So that allows them to keep in touch with their family members and friends and attorneys and whoever else um, they need to keep in touch with um, easily. But... Rikers Island did suspend in-person visits to limit the amount of people coming in and out of the jails and possibly spreading um, the virus more rapidly. But um, I believe that they had video visitation. Um, In D.C., it was like, oh, just everything's cut off. No visits. Um, no video visitation. And I think that as we progress with technology, jails and prisons need to progress with technology as well. So if in the community, things like FaceTime are becoming more popular and more used for people to connect and get that face-to-face interaction then what happens in jails and prisons should reflect that. So for the people who can't travel to the jails 
to visit their family members, video visitation, I think, should always be an option. That should be an option for visitation, and I don't think that in D.C., people should have gone almost two years now without being able to have visits with their family. Not that everyone has been there for two years, but over the past two years, something should have been adjusted. Something should have been created. Resources should have been put into video visitation. If you could do video visitation for attorneys and for parole board hearings and for court, why can't you set up video visitation for visits with family? so that incarcerated people can stay connected. Because also remember, a few episodes back, I talked about D.C. does not provide free phone calls for incarcerated people. So if someone's incarcerated in D.C., they don't have any money to buy calling cards to make phone calls to their family and friends. Their family and friends don't have the money Or the opportunity to come in and put money on their books or to find a Western Union to wire money to their books. That person has no money on their books for phone calls. So they're sitting in the D.C. jail for however long it takes for their sentence to run out or for the parole board to decide that they can be released or for um, their trial to be over or whatever the case may be. They're sitting there not being able to contact their family and friends. They're not able to keep that communication going with the people that they're going to be reconnecting with when they get out. There's a complete disconnect between them. And that doesn't help for re-entry. That doesn't help them be successful when they're re-entering into society and have to reintegrate back into those families. Back into those social circles. It's not beneficial for them to be cut off. When it comes to programs... um. A lot of programs were seen as non-essential. Some programs were stopped because um, it just... Some programs were stopped because they required groups of people. They couldn't work with people individually. And especially in the height of the pandemic, being in groups was not encouraged. So to keep people safe... Um, they either modified the way that they did, um, programs or they had to suspend them altogether. In DC, in the few, um, units where they actually had programming, um, (laughs) they weren't doing anything. Um, but you know, I went deeper into this conversation in part one of this episode, but they programming was pretty much non-existent. I mean, you could give some people a tablet and tell them to read some articles, but what do they really get out of that when you're in a re-entry program and you have to 
reintegrate reintegrate back into society how does that provide you with the supports that you need how does that provide you with the resources that you need it doesn't when you're in a program that's educational based or is a substance abuse program but no one's there to provide you with treatment provide you with groups it's just here here's a tablet read some things how is that beneficial at all so i see that they were trying to show that programs were still running on paper but i don't think that what they were doing was really beneficial at all or anything that the incarcerated people could take away And I'm not even just saying that from my own experience, me witnessing it. I'm saying that from sitting on those units and the people who are participating in those units coming up to me without me reaching out to them, nothing, just them coming up to me freely and talking about how this program is just BS. We're not learning anything. We're not being connected to resources. This is not helpful. You just put things on a piece of paper and say that you're doing all these things and you're not. We're not getting anything from this. As this um, article says, inability to see family over extended periods of time has significant impact on mental health. The pandemic was already a stressful time for a lot of people. A lot of people fell into depression, had anxiety over it. That was heightened for people who worked in jails and were afraid of contracting it, bringing it back to their families. But it was also really stressful for people who were incarcerated. And people who are incarcerated are already dealing with a stressful situation because they're in this restrictive facility. They can't really be around their family or communicate with their family like they're used to. They have things going on on the outside in the community. Um, some people wonder, well, what what's going to happen to my apartment? What's going to happen to my car? What's going to happen to my belongings? While I'm in here and I'm not able to pay these things or keep up with these things or I need to talk to this person because, you know, I need them to make sure that this is taken care of. It's already a stressful situation. Add a pandemic to that and it's even more stressful. And I was really disappointed that in the D.C. jail, there was just no emphasis on mental health, especially in the height of a pandemic. First of all, with all these programs that DC has in the jail, they don't have anything specific to treating mental health. They only have one unit for people who have mental health um, diagnoses. And just throw them all in there. It's all the same anyway, right? No. They're not being followed up with properly. They're being lost in the mix. Mental health is not cookie cutter. Just because someone was diagnosed with bipolar disorder 
does not mean that they should be treated the same as someone with schizoaffective disorder. And the mental health providers in the DC jail are from an outside organization. And for a while, they weren't letting people from outside organizations in. There weren't a lot of therapists by the time that I got there who were there to follow up with clients. When clients needed someone to talk to, of course, being a licensed mental health professional, I would talk to them, allow them to speak, allow them a space, a safe space to just let it all out. But when referring to them to the people who were actually in a position to be those supports for them, it was hard to find someone. So in a time when people need support the most, they can't even have the support from their families. It's just detrimental overall. Prison... Prison and jail management and services are a weak link in the criminal justice systems in many countries. According to this article, they say that they're easily forgotten by the public. Um, when it comes to the management and services, I agree. Easily forgotten by the public. Um, I had a conversation with someone I greatly respect and admire um who is the leader of a wonderful organization that does all these efforts and initiatives for criminal justice reform and i was talking to this person about um a situation and i was saying you know when things are being suggested about what to do in jails, safety precautions have to be um, have to be taken into account. You have to think about staffing and what's feasible in that structure, just even how the structure of the building is built. What's feasible? What can what can be done? And she said, you know, all of that is beyond me, basically. But it's not. Because if you're on the outside advocating for things on the inside, and you don't have any idea what the structure actually is on the inside, what is going on on the inside, who is working on the inside then you're going to be setting standards for jails that they will never meet because it's not feasible and you're not taking those things into account because you feel like that's not your problem and that's someone else's problem to figure out. We have to join together. If you're trying to fix a system, you have to communicate with the system. 
the management of the system and the services that are going on in that system have to be taken into account when you want to make changes, when you want to do advocacy, when you want to hold them to a standard. Otherwise, you are just making unrealistic standards that they cannot achieve because they don't have the staffing or they just don't have the structure. The units just aren't built in a way that can satisfy what it is that you want them to do. The article goes on to say that commendable actions have been taken, but more needs to be done. I think that some commendable actions have been taken. I think that probably in a lot of cases, not all, um, being as us out here in the community don't always have as much information as we would like to have regarding COVID um, because things are rapidly changing or because information just isn't getting to us. Um, I think that people have, for the most part, done the best they could with the information that they have. Speaking specifically about New York corrections, New York City corrections, um, I think that their response to COVID had a lot of faults in it, but there were things that I felt could be commended, um, such as reopening one of the jails, making that kind of like the COVID hub, the intake where people quarantine. Um, I'm not impressed at all by um, DC's initiatives to just, I guess, kind of shut everything down in, in the um, jail, confine people to their cells for 23 hours a day. Like, the way that they have things shut down is worse than how people are treated in solitary confinement. And they've been doing that for like two years now, and COVID still spreads rapidly in that jail. So it's clearly not working. So I just wonder at what point do you say this doesn't work? Let's think of another solution and try to put that into play and see what happens. Um, but that just hasn't been done. Um, so the article goes on to talk about some solutions. Um, one of them was to curb the continuous inflow of prisoners. They say that suspended sentences issued for less serious crimes in emergency release, particularly those most at risk or close to the end of their sentence. So for all my listeners who aren't familiar, suspended sentencing um, is when a sentence is deferred to allow the defendant to perform a period of of to perform a period of probation if the defendant does not commit another offense during that period the judge may dismiss the sentence altogether so in terms of suspended sentences and emergency releases i know that a lot of that was happening in the united states in different jails and i think that if someone 
contracts COVID and gets very sick or ends up having a lifelong illness because of it or lifelong health problems because of it or dies because of it when their crime was not a violent crime or the trial was being extended to past the time that they would have even been sentenced had they just been found guilty in the first place. Um, I think in those situations, um, when it's just not even really necessary or beneficial for someone to sit in jail when they could be placed on probation or just released out into the community because the charges are so minuscule. I think that it's really a shame that that person ends up contracting COVID and dying while incarcerated when that didn't have to happen. It didn't have to happen like that. On the contrary, there was an individual who was released from Rikers Island accidentally, I believe, um, he was released during the pandemic when, you know, they were doing these suspended sentences or emergency releases for people who had low level crimes. Um, he was, um, charged with murder and he ended up being released and committed a violent crime while out. So I think that we really have to be careful with that, but I do think that should exist and be practiced because there are some people who don't even really need to be in jail because the severity of their crime was not that great. Um, and it would just be a tragedy for them to contract covid have health problems because of it, possibly even die um, because they're being held on something minuscule. Approximately more than 700,000 prisoners have been authorized for release due to the pandemic. So um, this article talks about some support that the UN has offered to prisons around the world. There has been advocacy for holistic prison reform and re-examination of the current scope of imprisonment with a view to addressing over-incarceration and prison overcrowding. The UNODC, which is United Nations Office on Drug and Crime, has engaged with national prison and correctional services for more than 50 countries to provide support in enhancing measures to prevent and control infections, ensure continued adherence to minimum prison standards, and to promote, in suitable cases, an increased use of alternatives to imprisonment. Alternatives to imprisonment are... I think very important in criminal justice reform to find ways that we could keep people in the community and not have them enter into the jail or the prison system at all. Um, in terms of equipment, 
Um, things like water tanks, hospital beds, soap, mattresses, video conferencing equipment, and other materials as well have been provided in Uganda, Kenya, Somalia, and Southern Africa. In Malawi, um, improvements in ventilation and access to water have been made. In Bolivia, Lebanon, the Philippines, Sri Lanka, Somalia, and Zambia, the UNODC has provided prison authorities PPE, infrared thermometers, hand sanitizers. Um, that's really important that they're getting those supports because these things cost money. And when people aren't expecting to make the budget for them while also making the budget to make sure that things are running as best as they can, people's basic needs are being met and healthcare is being met, um, aside from the pandemic, I think it's really important to have I think it's really important to have other agencies or governing bodies or people like in the UN to be able to provide assistance and support in that so that these places aren't just left on their own to figure it out. Um, the UNODC continues to conduct webinars and online training courses on COVID prevention and responses to prison. I think that that's beneficial in America. So if I think it's beneficial here, it's probably really beneficial in other countries as well, especially countries that aren't as developed as America is. Um, so doing webinars, online training, people, keeping people informed, keeping them educated, keeping them up to date on the information um, surrounding COVID-19 is really beneficial because then that allows them to be transparent with their staff, to be transparent with the incarcerated people, to share accurate information, to know how to best handle and respond to COVID restrictions, to what's happening and developing with the pandemic. Many more efforts have been made and continue to be made, but are they enough? What is enough? What is enough when we're still trying to figure things out out here on the outside in society? But of course, I talk a lot about experience, um, my experience working in different jails, but I wanted to get a little bit more information about what's happening outside of the um, facilities that I've had experience in. And I think it's really important that people who have an interest in criminal justice and criminal justice reform, like myself, um, are also informed and educated on what's happening beyond just Rikers Island, which is such a hot topic in the, um, in the news and in media in general. So I came across this article. I wanted to share it all with you. That's all I have for you today, Jailbirds, but no worries. New episodes are available on Spotify and Anchor every Thursday morning. 
just in time for your morning commute. And you can always get chatty with me on Instagram and TikTok at Jailbird Chronicles and on Twitter at Jailbird Cron. Be safe, Jailbirds.